We're grateful for it. Well, Proverbs chapter 12 is where we're at. Proverbs chapter number 12. We're going to take uh, two weeks in this chapter. It divides itself up naturally into two distinct sections. While all of it speaks about the need for righteousness, it uh, speaks about that in the context of domestic life and also of civil life. Uh, And as usual, the writer speaks about the blessings of righteousness and the curse of evil. We find that all the way from chapter 1 all the way through the end of the book. And uh, in this chapter, he offers advice that will help us meet our responsibility to our family, to our neighbors, those that God has placed around us. The interesting thing here is that that the writer speaks about domestic duties first. And uh, that's the way it ought to be because the family, you know, is the building block of society. So strange today I was thinking about the message for Sunday morning and just jotting down just a few notes by way of my introduction, uh, which I'll not go into other than to say, you know, we just had Mother's Day. It won't be long before Father's Day will be here. And so tucked in between those two special days, uh, we're going to talk about the family on Sunday morning. And uh, as I wrote those words down, I wasn't even mindful of the fact that uh, that here in this chapter, that's exactly the uh, the thought that the writer presents to us. Uh, righteousness in regards to our domestic responsibilities and also concerning our civil duties. We'll get to the civil next week. But tonight, we just want to look at the domestic aspect and and it divides itself up into three parts. He addresses the man first, the woman second, and then gives us some general information for consideration third. So he begins here in the first three verses speaking about the man. Now, just as I said that um, whenever you're talking about all of life in general, uh, that the family is the, the institution of the family is the building block of society. So that's where you've, you've got to begin any discussion of improving society, right? And, and I think whenever it comes to the, when it comes to the family, any discussion of the family needs to start, uh, with, with the father because, uh, uh he, uh, not smarter, not better or anything like that. But he's put in a position of responsibility to be the leader and the provider and the protector in the home. And so uh, the writer certainly knew all of that as the Spirit of God is leading Solomon to put this in the order that God desires. So he, he starts with the man. Verse number 1, Whoso loveth instruction loveth knowledge, but he that hateth reproof is brutish. You know, we live in a day where I think it's become common to expect our children to, to hate school. I mean, we almost play into that. We make jokes about it, you know. Well, no kid likes to go to school, and, uh, you know, that's just, that's just normal. That's the way I was, you know, whenever I was a kid. And it's just natural that kids 
don't like school. Uh, but, you know, the question that comes to my mind is why not? Why, why shouldn't they like school? Whenever I think back in, in a lot of the reading that I've done in regards to the uh, missionaries and preachers of years gone by, and not just them, but men who turned out to be presidents of universities and so on and so forth, and there, there was a time that, you know, by the time that some of these young men were 14, 15 years old, they already knew three or four languages. I mean, they were people that were just obsessed, as it were, with learning. And I don't need to tell anybody, we live in a generation where we are obsessed with entertainment and enjoying ourselves and things that, that, that bring pleasure. And, and I think one of the marks of a good teacher is to be able to convince the kids that this is something that can be enjoyable as well as profitable. Sadly, they're not, uh, you know, they're not getting what they need in the, uh, in the, uh, in the public schools today, and that's very unfortunate. Richard was telling me the other day, for some of you that might not know, our community care ministry that we have here, and... Um, they say the toughest part of their job, in fact, they wrote a really nice letter about that that we sent out some time ago, how appreciative they are for us making the facilities here available for them uh, to meet, the homeschoolers, that is. And so as a result of this homeschooling, it's been growing and growing and growing, and now they are starting, it's either the fourth or the fifth chapter of homeschools uh, in, in, in the Houston area, and not just the Houston area, but on the, on the east side of Houston. And uh, all of that started out of the ministry right here. So in, in, in opening up our facilities, let these homeschoolers meet here, uh, out of that has grown four or five more chapters of the homeschool uh, the homeschool program. And boy, I, that might not excite you, but it excites the daylights out of me. That just thrills my heart to think that that is growing. And I say that not because I'm against public schools, but because of the fact that public schools are failing so miserable in this day that we're living in, and it shouldn't be that way. But I'm getting off track. The point is we need to do everything we can to encourage our young people to learn and to enjoy it. It's tragic whenever they don't because, you know, um, many of them have the same attitude toward learning when they're 50 years old that they did when they were 5 years old or 10 years old. And, uh, you know, they never gain any appreciation uh, for reading, for example. And so uh, here he says, whoso loveth instruction loveth knowledge. And if, if you want knowledge, you've got to listen to instruction. But notice the flip side of the coin here. He says, but, uh, this is the negative now, but he that hateth reproof is brutish. In other words, those that despise reproof, you're not going to tell me anything. I already know it all. I've already got it figured out. And they despise someone trying to correct them and enlighten them. And, and notice he says people like that are brutish. 
you know, we don't get the full impact of that because we're not Hebrew scholars or anything. But that word, the very thought that somebody would call us, uh, call you brutish, that means animal-like. That's exactly the meaning of it. It means that we're animal-like. It means that we are irrational. It means that we don't have good sense. And uh, that's true of every person who despises instruction. And uh, that's the classification that they're put in. And so, you know, that's, that's not my opinion. That's God's opinion. That's, that's what God says about such people. And in some way we can get that across to the to our young people that, you know, th- this matter of learning is not just a matter of making good grades. It's a matter of you becoming a better person and a more effective servant for the Lord. Now, verse 2, a good man... A good man obtaineth favor of the Lord, but a man of wicked devices will he condemn. Well, whenever I read those words, a good man, the first thought comes to my mind is how do you define a good man? You know, we we misuse a lot of different words. I think I've got in the habit of using the word, you know, something will happen that's good, and I say, oh, that's awesome. When you get down to it, everything's not really awesome. I, I, I tend to exaggerate in the use of that word. And a lot of times we, we do the same thing with the word good. We say, you know, this is good or that's good, and it's not necessarily so. But when God says something's good, it really is. But how, how do you define a good man? You know, does that mean just be a nice neighbor? Does it mean to give to charitable uh, uh, charitable uh, programs and things like that. Well, what does it take to make a good man? Well, in, in the book of Galatians, and we don't need to turn there, but chapter number 5, and from verse 16 all the way through verse number 25, it sums all of this up by telling us here that the person who walks in the Spirit rather than the flesh is a good man. That's a good person. Uh, so you can be a good person without a good education. You can be a good person without a high IQ. You can be a good person without a, a big salary. You can get a, be a good person, you know, and live on the wrong side of the tracks. Uh, because being a good person simply means that your life is being guided by the Spirit of God. Because the only true goodness in any of us is that which is produced by the Spirit of God. There's nothing good about me, nothing good about you. Someone said to me just this, just this week in the conversation, and they were talking about the fact that uh, uh, in loving others, you know, which naturally that's what we're supposed to do, but in reality when you get right down to it, the person said, you know, I, uh, I, I just find it impossible to love other people like I'm supposed to. And, and you know, my comment was that's absolutely right. And that's why I keep saying it takes a miracle to live the Christian life. It is beyond what we can do. When the Bible tells us that we're to love one another, pray for one another, forgive our enemies, are you kidding me? I mean, that's just not in me to forgive. I mean, I, I've got a vengeful spirit. I mean, by nature I do. And thank God as I yield myself to the Holy Spirit, He enables me to do what ordinarily I couldn't do. He enables me to do exactly the opposite of what I normally want to do. 
And, and, and so when we talk about being a good person, it has to do with us walking in, in agreement with the Spirit of God. And notice it says here that the good man, the person that does that, what happens? Well, it says they obtain the favor of the Lord. I mean, isn't that what we're supposed to be doing, pleasing God? To obtain God's favor, that is to win His approval? I mean, to think about His smile of approval upon what we do. And it doesn't matter what else happens if God is pleased with it. You know, every single service, whether it's Wednesday night or whenever it is, whether I'm teaching a lesson or whether I'm preaching a sermon or, or whatever it is, you know, I, I want it to be the very best that it can be. I know it's not always as good as it could be. I know it's not always maybe as good as what somebody else could do. But, but, you know, that's not the criteria. That's not the important issue. The important issue is this pleasing to God. And if it's pleasing to God, that's all that really matters. And we need to keep that in mind. And in order to gain the favor of the Lord, what does he say? Well, that requires being a good person. Character counts with God. Now, notice here again the other side of the coin, the negative side. But a man of wicked devices will he condemn. Now, notice the reward associated with this. The reward for being a good person is we obtain the favor of the Lord, right? And on the other hand, for those that are unrighteous, for those that are of wicked devices, he says, they shall, shall he condemn. Now, it's talking about the condemnation of the Lord. And just as it ought to be our highest honor to be able to please God, it ought to be our greatest fear to displease God. And to think about the Lord's condemnation upon us. You know, by, by the way, whenever I say that, I'm not talking about God sending you to hell. I'm talking about God condemning your actions. And that can be as true of a Christian as it is a non-believer. That God condemns our actions. And when they're contrary to, you know, the way that the Spirit of God leads us, then that brings about the condemnation of the Lord. Now, notice what he says next. He says, a man shall not be, a man shall not be established by wickedness, but the root of the righteous shall not be moved. Now, in view of this second clause, look at the second part of this verse first. Because in, in light of the second clause here, it tells us that we ought to interpret the first part as a metaphor. Now remember, he's drawing a contrast, the one with the other. And it's very clear from this verse that a metaphor is being used. He says, he speaks about the root of the righteous. So whenever we look at the first part, we know that he's speaking in, in the same manner of speech. A man Notice, shall not be established by wickedness. The idea is that the righteous person is going to be firmly grounded. We talk about people being rooted and grounded in the truth, for example. And so it's speaking about stability. It's speaking about security, uh, strength. And that comes through what? It comes through righteousness. On the other hand, those that are wicked, they shall not be established. There, 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 there won't be any security, and, and it's going to uh, end up, you know, in ruin eventually. 
the foundation matters, and we'll see that here in just a little while in another verse. But, uh, you know, our foundation has to be built upon righteousness, and whenever we do that, we, we know as a result of that that we're going to be secure. And isn't that what he had in mind there in, you know, Matthew six thirty three, where he says, Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and what? And all of these things will be added unto you. That's security. You know, the assurance that we have that God's going to provide what we need as a result of us seeking his righteousness. So this this is basically addressed to the men in the family. Now verse 4 clearly is addressed to the women. He says, a virtuous woman is a crown to her husband. Uh, but she that maketh the shame is as rottenness in his bones. The word virtuous means power. In other words, it's describing a lot of people think about a virtuous woman being a woman that is pure, but that's not the, that's not the thought of it. Now, certainly a, a woman ought to be pure, but the thought here is that of power and strength. And uh, that's the kind of woman described in Proverbs chapter number 31. The virtuous woman, she has great strength. And uh, it says here she is a crown to her husband. Uh, I like what Charles Bridges, who wrote probably the best commentary on Proverbs that anyone ever wrote many years ago. He was one of the old Puritan writers. And he said concerning this virtuous woman, she is... She is not the ring on her husband's finger or the chain of gold around his neck that were far too low. She is his crown, his brightest ornament, drawing the eyes of all upon him as intimately honored and blessed. I mean, that is a great description of what's being said here, that she is a crown to her husband. That implies that she adorns and she beautifies his life. Uh, She makes him joyful. She makes him uh, respected by others. In other words, it's kind of like saying uh, she treats him like he is a king. And uh, by the way, that's what God intended for her to do. First Corinthians 11 says the woman was, you know, God, man was created for, for God, but the woman was created for the man. I mean, that's her purpose in life, to be a helpmate. I was afraid in an article I sent out the other day that somebody might misunderstand it. The title of the article was, uh, was what, uh, 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 how a, how a mother uh, how a mother uh, influenced my life, and I made the statement that it was a mother who has had a greater influence on my life than anybody else. But it wasn't my mother, and and, and I don't say that in any way whatsoever uh, to disrespect my mother. I, I loved her dearly, and she was a uh, was a good mother, and so on and so forth. But I was only there in the home. About uh, maybe close to 16 years. I really gone, you might say, before that. But uh, I spent the first 16 years of my life, you know, in in the home, and uh, she fed me, took care of me that way. There was no spiritual instruction whatsoever, no spiritual encouragement or anything. But I loved her dearly for the contribution that she made to my life. But she's not the mother that has influenced me most. 
The mother that influenced me most was the mother of my children, my wife. She's had a greater influence and been a greater help to me than any person on the face of the earth. And uh, and every time I think about the virtuous woman, you know, uh, that's who comes to my mind because I know what she has meant to me. And I'm certain that many of the men in the church say the same thing about their wife, that there's just, you know, there's nobody like your wife. There's a closer relationship with her than with anyone else. And if we had the time, we could talk about the fact, all of the things that she does here. You know, she's uh, uh, she, she's a, a crown to her husband. She, uh, instead of, you know, dragging him down, she lifts him up. And uh, so, notice the second half, but... Here we go again. But she that maketh the shame is as a rottenness in his bones. This is the woman that refuses to help, that refuses to respect her husband, give him her, you know, his rightful place. It says she's like a rottenness in his bones. In other words, she's like a disease instead of a diadem. The righteous woman is like a diadem, a crown to her husband, but this woman is pictured as being a disease in his bones. She's someone that decreases his strength, destroys his usefulness, deprives him of his happiness, disgraces his name, disobeys God, and dooms the relationship. And so every woman has a choice of what kind of a woman they're going to be or what kind of a wife they're going to be, either the virtuous woman or the other woman that here is the, described as the wicked woman that maketh a shame. Now, in verse 5, he begins to just give advice in general pertaining to the domestic uh, issue. In verse 5, he says, The thoughts of the righteous are right. Well, that goes without saying the thoughts of the righteous are right, but the counsels of the wicked are deceit. You know, it might be a good place to uh, ask the question, you know, where do you get your advice? Where do you get your advice? Because life is full of questions and just about everybody has an opinion. It doesn't make any difference what it is. You just strike up a conversation with a bunch of people and, and almost everybody there will have some kind of an opinion. Well, I think this, or I think that, or I've been told, I've always believed. Everybody's got an opinion, but we've got to be careful who we listen to, and especially we've got to be careful that we don't trust those who are wicked. If their character is not what it ought to be, then their counsel ought to be taken with a grain of salt. We've got to be so very careful, especially in the day and age that we live in. That's why so many of our fine young people... You know, they'll graduate from high school and they'll leave the church and they go off to college. And there in college, they'll be introduced to some professor that, that, you know, has all of these degrees and he has great ability. And I mean, with his, with his ability, his obvious knowledge, it's like he mentally knocks their socks off. And the sad thing is, after a while, they begin to think, and you know, Boy, mom and dad were just really a bunch of dummies. They weren't near as smart as this guy. You know, they've been telling me this and that. So after a while, after a while, this guy makes such an impression upon them, they begin to swallow hook, line, and sinker, everything he says. 
And then it gets off in the matter of religion, spiritual things. Well, you know what happens. And we've got to be ever so careful about where we get our advice. Dr. Phil is not the authority on everything. He might be good on some issues. He might do a lot of good and help a lot of people. But he's not the final authority on anything. God's Word is. And so here he says the thoughts of the righteous are right. Why? Well, it's because of the fact that they're listening to the to the Word of God. The counsels of the wicked are deceit. Now, verse 6, And the words of the wicked are to lie in wait for blood. But the mouth of the upright shall deliver them. And the idea here is just as thieves lie in wait to ambush, you know, sometimes even killing people, killing their victims, wicked people, wicked people use words to ambush and to destroy people. I mean, just even while the other person is talking, they're thinking about how they can how they can spend it and turn it and and you know and, and use words to to bring them down. And uh, we can do so much damage with words, and it's not always it's not always what we say. Sometimes it's the way that we say it. And uh, so he, he says, the words of the wicked are to lie in wait for blood. These people ain't playing games. I mean, they don't care if they hurt you or destroy you. But notice the righteous do exactly the opposite of that. They speak words that deliver rather than destroy. And uh, they do that in a number of ways. It might be that, that they are pleading the cause of those who are oppressed. They see others being pushed down and mistreated and abused and neglected, and they speak up on their behalf. It might be that they speak words of cheer to those that are, uh, that are in a state of depression. And, and you know, we just, we just never know what great things might, might happen as a result of just speaking a kind word to someone. And we have that opportunity every time that we meet together, don't we? Every, every Sunday, every Wednesday night, whenever we come into contact with other people. And we ought to be ministering to them. The words, the words of the upright, upright shall deliver them. And so we ought to be using our word to, uh, to, words to heal instead of to hurt people or to deliver people uh, instead of destroying people. Verse 7. And by the way, you know, it's a good thing. You, you tie this into the family especially. And, uh, <laughs> boy, if you're, listen, if you're married, you know this is where most of our problems center, right? These arguments and debates and what have you. And it, it, all, it always gets back to, to, to a matter of war of words. And, uh, you know, it's a hard lesson to learn to just lower your voice because most of us are tempted whenever we get angry to what? Our voice gets louder and louder and louder, and after a while we're shouting and being disrespectful of one another. And that's why, you know, we turn a little bitty problem uh, uh, in, in, into a mountain, make a mountain out of a molehill, something that doesn't amount to a hill of beans, and all of a sudden we've blown it all out of proportion. And, you know, well, the next thing you know, well, I want a divorce. And it all started over something, you know, that didn't uh, amount to anything. Verse 7, the wicked are overthrown 
and are not. That's another way of saying they'll perish, they'll pass away. But the house of the righteous shall stand. I jotted down here in my Bible, chapter 14, verse 34, where it says, Righteousness exalted the nation, but sin is a reproach to any people. And that's the point here. It says, The house of the righteous shall stand, but... But notice the wicked are overthrown. So whether we are overthrown or whether we overcome depends upon our character. It depends upon whether we're wicked or whether we're righteousness or whether we're righteous. And that's why we often say, you know, the sinner is his own worst enemy. We bring the wrath of God down upon our own head as a result of the things that we do. And then Normally, we want to blame everybody else for it, you know. Well, this just isn't fair. I've had bad luck. You know, God is even against me. And the fact of the matter is, uh, our character determines what happens in our life. And that's the point. Nobody can avoid the storms of life. I don't care how good you are. Regardless of how righteous you are, you're going to have storms in life. But the point here is that the foundation makes the difference. And if we build our hopes and our life upon the vain philosophies of this world, we're going to fall when the storms come. But if we're building our life on the Word of God and and our character is what it ought to be, Regardless of what comes against us, we'll be able to stand and be victorious over it. Verse 8, a man shall be commended according to his wisdom, but he that is of a perverse heart shall be despised. So, you know, we've been talking about conduct and character. Well, here, conduct determines what other people think about us, right? A man shall be commended according to his wisdom. What they see in us determines what they think about us. The problem is, is that a lot of times we want to live one way and have people to think about us another way. And that's really not hardly fair, is it? You know, I I want you to think well of me. I want you to think I'm a wonderful person and all of that. But we don't live that way. We feel insulted if somebody just comes out, you know, and paints our character uh, as it really is, you know, and pictures us as we really are uh, verbally. That would insult us. But the fact of the matter is, you know, uh, that's the truth, and the truth hurts sometimes. So if we want others to think well of us, Uh, We've got to remember that's going to spring forth out of our character. And a man shall be commended, and certainly not only only is he going to be commended by the Lord, but even by others, according to his wisdom, whereas those that are of a perverse, that is a crooked heart, uh, they're going to be despised by others. Verse number 9, He that is despised and hath a servant is better than he that that honoreth himself and lacketh bread. I'm glad, you know, the Bible helps us to stay balanced. It's so easy, regardless of what subject that we're talking about, it's real easy to get out of balance. We're so worried about, you know, uh, staying out of the ditch on one side of the road that we go all the way across and get in the ditch on the other side of the road. And so here in verse 8, he gives us a warning And even though we should strive to win the respect of other people, 
and they'll respect us whenever they see us walking according to wisdom. Even though that's true, uh, reputation isn't everything. It's a good thing, you know, if it's good, but it's not everything because you can have a, you can have a good reputation and it not be justified. You know, there are people that will think highly of you, y'all. Yeah, I'll tell you, he is one, he's one of the greatest people I ever met in my life. And they might be a, you know, a low-down, no-good scoundrel, not good for, for anything. And, and so it's wonderful if we've got a good reputation whenever it's deserved. But we've got to understand that and the most foolish thing in the world is for us to be lifted up with pride when there's no justification for it. And so this verse is just added in there as a, as a warning to help us maintain balance in regards to winning the approval of other people. Am I making any sense? Are you with me? Because, you know, a man's highly regarded and respected for his wisdom, but, you know, uh, but we've got to be careful about making that the main issue in our life and saying, you know, oh, well, as long as they think highly of me, that's all that matters. Verse 10, a righteous man regardeth the life of his beast, but the tender mercies of the wicked are cruel. Let's see, is this the, is the one coming in tonight? Or that was last week? Okay, I didn't want to run overtime, and and I'm not quite through yet, so... Uh, here we see an emphasis placed upon on some things that normally are considered to be of minor importance. Uh, a righteous man regardeth the life of his beast. We read that and we think, oh, a lot of things more important than that. Have you ever have you ever considered all of that the Bible has to say about how we? how we ought to even treat animals. Now, whenever I was a boy growing up, we had a rule when you went hunting, if you saw a cat, you killed it. You shot it. I mean, that was it. And I didn't think there's anything wrong with shooting cats. I didn't think there's anything wrong with... <laughs> well, I won't, I won't go there. It involved using a ball bat, but I won't describe it any further than that. It was, it was, it was bad and wrong. But I, I didn't see it as wrong because I'd been taught as a boy those things aren't good for anything. You need to get rid of all of them. They eat, you know, the little baby rabbits and quail and you need to get rid of them. So I didn't have any respect. But I did have an overall respect, uh, you know, for nature in general. In fact, from the age of about, oh, 10 or or 12, something like that. I wanted to be a conservation agent there uh, in Missouri. I thought that'd be a wonderful thing. Teddy Roosevelt was my hero, and Teddy Roosevelt, you know, was big on this matter of the environment and so forth. And but you look through the Bible and you read these verses, like an ox and an ass not being yoked together, uh, or an ox couldn't be muzzled while treading out the corn, and and, and the several other examples of that. But uh, it's, it's simply showing us that a righteous man will have respect for God's creation. And I think that's all that needs to be said about that. And uh, we, we ought not to take any delight in the unnecessary suffering of inferior creatures. 
I know somebody's going to come along, you know, and say, yeah, and all you people go out here and kill them poor little deer, little Bambi and stuff like that. Let me tell you something. If it wasn't for hunting, if it wasn't for hunting, many of our animals would be extinct. If it wasn't for the conservation measures and things of that nature, uh, I didn't aim to give a lecture on this tonight, but I'm, I'm, I'm telling you there's not anything wrong uh, with killing you know, what you're going to eat whenever it's used for food. I, you know, I kind of think that's the way it worked back before, you know, we had Kroger's and HEV, right? There was a time when it was that way. But we ought to respect creation. Now I've got to quit. Verse 11, He that tilleth the land shall be satisfied with bread. But he that followeth vain persons is void of understanding. Well, well here we go again. This is that leads us to that same thought that we have so many people in America today that want something for nothing and they have a uh, they have a sense of entitlement and no sense of responsibility whatsoever and the point here is that satisfaction comes from from hard honest work not handouts you know that now listen that doesn't mean that it's wrong for us to receive a handout sometimes whenever the situation is such that we need it and others offer it and what have you you know that's well and good that we ought to be willing to work and put in a hard day's work you know for for our pay and that brings a sense of satisfaction that you can't get anywhere else and if you put it in a modern day setting I think and we tried to convey a message to our kids and teach them that, you know, the kid that gets a part-time job after school is a whole lot better off than a kid that hangs around the pool hall or the mall or the game room all of the time. Because whenever they, whenever they learn to work, they will develop an appreciation for what they have and a satisfaction for life that others don't know anything about. And, and you'll, ne- you'll never have to worry about them being part of a roving gang out here looting and burning buildings because they appreciate good hard work. Well, I hope something tonight has been said that will be beneficial. And Lord willing, next week we'll pick up and we'll finish the rest of the chapter talking about uh, the civil life and the need for righteousness in that regard. Does anyone have a final word before we leave, something we forgot about maybe, or an announcement that needs to be made? Or Rick? Oh. <laughs> well, amen, amen. that's a good thing, but considering what you're looking at, I kind of feel sorry for you in another sense. Okay, anybody else? Amen. That's that's awesome. We're so... Amen.